This is episode 211 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Quantitative Stem Cell Dynamics with Dr. Alejo Rodriguez Fraticello. Hey everybody, we are Daylon and Arun. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge in stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. Just a reminder that the 2022 ISSCR annual meeting is taking place June 15th to the 18th in San Francisco. The meeting is health and safety protocols in place and requires proof of vaccination to attend. And for those of you who prefer not to attend in person, there is also the option to attend virtually. Early registration is open until March 9th. Today, we have Dr. Alejo Rodriguez Fraticelli from the Quantitative Stem Cell Dynamics Lab at IRB Barcelona on the podcast to talk about his research on stem cell memory and epigenetics in hematopoiesis, immunity, and leukemia. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights and stem cell news that's coming up. But first, Stem Cell Technologies has been in the field of hematopoietic stem and progenitor research for over 20 years. And during that time, they've learned a thing or two. Visit stemcell.com slash hemahub for educational resources to help you further your research on hematopoiesis and hematological malignancies. All right, Arun, I'm starting out the roundup today with uh, what's not exactly a bombshell story, but it's made news because I think it's a really important culmination of pivotal, seminal work that's been done in the field of adoptive immune therapy. Um, you'll remember that in 2018, the Nobel Prize was awarded uh, in physiology or medicine for cancer immunotherapy. This is kind of an offshoot of that, which I think is in line for the Nobel Prize if, if it's eligible. I mean, I don't know the vagaries, but this is such a big deal because it's effectively a cure for cancer. Um, and this is a follow-up from a, a paper that came out from the June group, Carl June's group, uh, about a decade ago in 2010. Uh, it was about two patients, all right? We're talking N equals two patients here, but the result was such a big deal uh, that it was a landmark study. These patients were infused with these CAR T cells to treat chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Uh, this was in 2010 as part of a phase one trial. And the reason why it really blew everyone away is because they were in complete remission um, and the CAR T cells were shown to persist uh, in the immediate uh, period following the treatment. Um, and now here we are 10 years later and we have this really important follow-up and maybe consider some as kind of bookkeeping, but this is the most high level bookkeeping you can get. And the insight gleaned from this was really important. Again, this is uh, from Carl June's group, but also uh, the work was monitored closely by Kai Tan and uh, J. Joseph Mellenhorst. They are all at the uh, Perelman School of Medicine University of Pennsylvania. And because these patients have been in remission cured, by the way, mind you, these patients were like on death's door uh, and they were entered into this clinical trial um, because there were no other treatments, phase one, and here they are 10 years later and they're still in remission. So everyone in the news is calling it a cure cure. Uh, and that's why it's a big deal. But from a scientific standpoint, it offered an opportunity because they're still walking around to see how these CAR T cells are doing, what they're doing, if they persisted, and what the kind of phenotype and heterogeneity that's present amongst them is. Uh, and that's what uh, they did. They had been tracking these two patients, again, just two patients. So there's going to have to be a lot of follow-up from this. But they were able to track and take samples from these patients over the course of many years. And they found really the key was that 
the cancer was still not there and the T cells were. Uh, but that's oversimplifying. If you drill down and get a little bit more granular in the results, what they found was interesting. Uh, one, they found in both populations, in both patients, there was this population of highly activated CD4 positive cells that like dominated all the CAR T cells that had, had been um, infused into the patients. Uh, so it, it was thought that maybe these cells, these highly cytotoxic cells were perhaps mediating the actual effect, the, the, the suppressive effect on the, on the leukemia. So that was one insight. Um, and also they found another strange, I guess you would call a population in one of the patients of these gamma delta CAR T cells uh, that really expanded. And I mean, th there was some details as to whether or not that may have mediated the cytotoxic effect. But uh, the, the real key there, I thought, was that in one patient, you had this unique clone. In both patients, you had these two CD4 positive clones. And what they, uh, what they conclude there is that this is what happens when the CAR T population and its, and its uh, derivative daughter cells stabilize into this kind of heterogeneous clones that persist. And I think that's the key that persist and perhaps able to surveil, um, as Carl June has said in the past, this kind of whack-a-mole that is leukemia. You use the drugs to suppress it, you're fine for years, and then they pop up. Um, and that's why this therapy has been so effective. And in these early, early patients, for them to still be walking around with full cure, I think is really game-changing and why I feel that uh, this uh, therapy is in line for the Nobel Prize. It's inevitable. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I think it's inevitable that this is going to receive a Nobel Prize at some point in the probably not too far future. Uh, it's tremendous. I mean, we don't like to throw around that word, the C word cure too often. And certainly the, the general public and the popular media can pick up on that and go to town with it. But this really is a cure. This is 10 years of remission. Um, I believe of the two patients, one, I think, passed away from COVID in 2021. So that's really unfortunate, but I believe the other is still doing well and it is a, a long-term remission. A few things also caught my interest here. One, <laughs> Carl June is of course an icon in this field and I would highly recommend uh, our listeners to check out the episode of our sister podcast, the immunology podcast that had uh, Carl June on the show. That was a, was a great, a great chat. Um, but yeah, this has been the focus of Dr. June's work for a long time. And uh, another thing that really caught my eye here was the application of CYTOF. It's a technology that's become quite, quite commonplace now in the, um, in the blood field and being able to dissect some of these mechanisms using CYTOF is extremely powerful. I think, and this is something that this has come up, I'm sure on the immunology show and definitely on our show as well. This is effectively a cure for leukemia. Um, and really the next step is to see how these CAR T approaches can be utilized for solid tumors as well. It's easier said than done as we've talked about ad nauseum on the show, but that's really the, the next step here, right, Dylan? Yes. I, I think there's a lot of, uh, trials in place for solid tumors in, in the brain. I think glio or neuroblastoma is one of them, um, that's showing early signs that it may be promising. Although the, the challenge there is always the microenvironment, these CAR T cells don't really stand up to that microenvironment that's created around solid tumors as well as they do as these hematological malignancies that are kind of distributed, right? 
but um, yes, I think that the, the future is very bright. This is a major point of affirmation, I think, for science in general. It's been a good few years for science and therapy. Um, and I think this portends a, a future where CAR-T is going to be really, I wouldn't say universally applied, but is going to be one of the mainline therapies for all types of, of cancer therapy. But I think, again, I want to remind us all that this is a, a key follow-up and a lot more follow-ups are necessary, right? These are two patients. I'm glad you mentioned, I didn't know that, that the patient died to COVID. It's unfortunate you get through B-cell, chronic, you know, lymphocytic leukemia, and then COVID gets you oh, rats. But um, the key here is the follow-up and we need to look at more patients. I think a good, they just kind of drop this in at the end of the discussion, but part of the, the stabilization of those clones, the clonal heterogeneity and the dominance of some of those clones, they, they do acknowledge that it could be due to integration events. You know, there could be some gain of function in some of these uh, CAR T cells such that they become the dominant clone. And, you know, there may be some kind of off-target uh, pathological sequelae to that that we have to keep our eye on. So really exciting early, uh, a follow-up of an early and pivotal result but I think it does kind of raise a few flags of what we should be looking out for moving forward with the rest of these patients. Yeah, it's definitely not perfect, but I think we are progressing in the, the right direction. And one application of cell therapy to another, this is actually quite different. We're going from the blood to the, to the eye. We're going to talk about creating retinal organoids that actually have cones inside of them. This is a pretty cool story coming from Cell Stem Cell in the lab of Ronak Sinha, First author is Andrila Saha over there at Wisconsin. And basically what they're showing here is that uh, they're able to make these pretty advanced retinal organoids, which like what we we're talking about before, you know, in the, in the realm of cell therapy, maybe these retinal organoids and the cones that they harbor could actually be used downstream for different treatments in the eye. So just a little bit of background, we know that high definition vision in humans and primates in general is really partially dominated by cones, cone photoreceptors that are located within a really specialized region of the retina called the fovea. And you have this foveal cone death was actually a major cause of, of blindness and different retinal dystrophies as well, including something we've talked a lot about here on the show, macular degeneration, right? Uh, we have different stem cell-based approaches to actually treat macular degeneration using perhaps iPSC-derived RPEs, retinal pigment epithelial cell. This is a slightly different approach, a combination of a disease model plus potentially a cell therapy down the road. So here they're able to generate 3D retinal organoids or ROs as they call them, derived from here human pluripotent stem cells. And they are thinking that perhaps in the future, they're gonna be able to perhaps treat some of the diseases of, of eye degeneration that I talked about, but also serve as an in vitro model for how degeneration actually happens. And to make these ROs perfect, these retinal organoids, the cones inside of them have to be electrophysiologically active. This is really important. So they have to be able to elicit robust and intrinsic light evoked electrical responses, depending on the different colors that are the, the organoids are subjected to, right? This is the idea of phototransduction. And this needs to be on par with what you would find in the adult foveal cones as well. And this is something that hasn't really been demonstrated yet. So the cool thing in this study is that they're able to show a really strong, repetitive, graded, and important, like I, I, 
I mentioned briefly there, wavelength specific light evoke responses. So depending on the wavelength of light that's actually hitting these organoids, they're able to respond appropriately in the cones inside the organoids, right? And the photoresponses and actually the, the membrane physiology in these cones are pretty comparable to what you would find ex vivo in a non-human primate model. One thing to note here is you have to you know, compare these responses to what you would get with a, the real deal, right? The adult phobia. You can't get adult human eye tissue that frequently and that readily for research purposes, especially in this context. And this is something they mentioned in their um, in their discussion section. So to counter that, they actually use non-human primates, and I believe they were able to use macaque phobial tissue as the, the, the comparator here. But they're able to show that indeed the responses of these retinal organoids and the cones in the organoids are very comparable to what you would find in the ex vivo macaque primate uh, phobia in terms of their electrophysiological responses and all that. So the hope is, yeah, maybe these are on par with the real thing. And so maybe we can use these cones for cell replacement therapies down the road maybe drug testing and vitro models, all the good stuff that we can use for different iPS-derived cell types. But uh, a neat in vitro model, a neat uh, differentiation approach to actually create these pretty advanced cones in an organoid, an organoid system. So cool with the different wavelengths of, of light. I mean, eliciting a different electrophysiological reaction. This is a, I, I just, I'm, I'm, I never ceases to amaze me all the the granular detail of biology and how we're able to now recapitulate in these stem cell systems. It's really impressive. And I do applaud also uh, both the press and the authors for not making a big, big story about, you know, an organoid with eyes. I, the, the last time we covered a story like this with the two little light sensitive things and all yeah. the press is about organoid with eyes. This is much, I guess, tempered um, in the enthusiasm, but I would say, even I wouldn't say even more impressive, but the 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 specificity uh, of the the system that they're going after here and and the complexity I, I was very impressed with. Yeah, it's it's really really nice system. I think maybe it doesn't it doesn't have that popular appeal because in the previous paper I forget who it was from it was basically a cortical organoid with like two eye like structures stuck onto the 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 organoid, so you can have that kind of popular appeal. This is. This is an organoid of the eye, right? Not a neural organoid that has quote unquote eyes attached to it. So a little bit different, but functionally it is, I think really cool. Just what you're alluding to there, the, the wavelength specific response of these organoids to light is something that I've never really seen before. There are a couple of other limitations though, that uh, I wanted to touch about briefly on this, for this particular paper, we were talking about RPEs, retinal pigment epithelial cells, and apparently there is no endogenous RPE in these organoids, but I don't think that should be a, a big issue to address here. Perhaps you could do iPS-derived retinal pigment epithelial cells, RPEs, and then stick them onto these retinal organoids to get like a next level structure of and, you know, reproduction of the eye in that way. I don't know. But either way, you know, really cool in vitro model, a lot of different applications here for, for studying degeneration of the eye and so many different things. I don't know about you. I could see the wrong person in the press gets all this and it's it's organoid eyeballs can see color. You know, that's the headline. And I, sure. I, that's that's the way some people like to do it. But yeah, much, much more sensible. Uh, the, the, the coverage here. 
um, and a great story. Moving on to, I'm going deep in the basic here. So you're going to have to bear with me, guys. But I think this is a, a, an important story related to the knowledge gap in the primary differentiation. I mean, the first differentiation events in the embryo. Um, in the mouse, that first differentiation lineage segregation occurs in the eight cell stage when you get the division of the inner cell mass, the pluripotent, and the outer cells, which form the trophectoderm. Um, and with this event, after the segregation, these outer cells, uh, they polarize the apical cortex, right? And they establish these cortical F-actin uh, proteins into a ring. And that structure scaffolds a lot of other proteins that mediate the apical uh, polarity, okay? And then, I mean, I'm going deep here, guys. You gotta bear with me. That polarization then trigger, triggers this kind of uh, different differential regulation of the transcriptional regulators that dictate trophectoderm identity, YAP and CDX2, okay? So that's how you get there. You have pluripotent kind of default fate, and then you, you through this polarization, acquire uh, the expression of YAP and CDX2 in the outer cells. Now, there's been some studies that say this is just random, right? Inner, outer, right? Um, and yet there's other studies that say there's like pre-existing heterogeneity amongst the cells that can predict the inner and the outer cells, including some transcriptional differentiation or differences. Um, but, you know, the mechanism underlying this polarization still remains very elusive. Uh, but that said, in many polarized tissues and cell types, uh, the cortical proteins there, they differentially regulate the spindle so as to create that differential uh, cleavage event by these astral microtubules to make this asymmetric division, okay? That was some cell biology at the great depth. And that's what leads me into the work that was done by the group of Nicholas Plakta who is also at the University of Perlman. I mean, Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, just like our guy Carl June and his groups are his uh, colleagues there. So I'm doing a Perlman uh, set of stories today. Anyway, Plakta and his group, what they did is following up from that, they built on this, this knowledge gap, right? Because fundamentally, even though in all these other polarized tissues, it's the mitotic spindle that dictates this asymmetric division, Lo and behold, mouse embryos lack centrosomes, right? Um, or they lack the, the microtubule organizing centers actually uh, that typically um, give rise to these asters, right? So in this story, what they found is that there is in fact this heterogeneity that's present at the eight cell stage. And what they show is that it's dictated by this aconventional spindle, all right? That it, it, arises in this modular stepwise way from a single microtubule aster um, uh, and that's not localized to a, to a microtubule organizing center. So it's kind of in space and that that hooks up to the rest of the, of the spin, spindle apparatus. And then once that's totally assembled, as they call it, this monoastral spindle uh, triggers this polarization, this asymmetric division and that seg segregates the cells into inner and outer, all right? So that's, I mean, that's deep basic science. And I I'm, was impressed in it because I always love any story that really learns just by looking at the system. And this, this paper had a lot of tremendous imaging, real time, but also very basic, you know, just DAPI and standing for alpha tubule and looking at the spindle. 
they are able to glean all these insights. And why I think it's relevant and important is today, these days, we talk about these blastoids and a, a lot of the shortcomings, I think, of the blastoids, it's been thought is that the synchrony of these uh, different cell types, the primitive endoderm, the, the pluripotent cells and the trophectoderm, it's, perf it's not per perhaps not perfectly aligned. Um, and we like to think of trophectoderm differentiation that we can control it with the chemical cues or molecular cues. But I think that this paper and papers like it kind of underscore that all these things happen in three-dimensional space. These things happen in the context of tissues and structures. And in this case, I think it illustrates that this primary segregation, lineage segregation, it's a spatial segregation and it's dictated in large part by the mechanics of the spindle. And that's perhaps something that we're not replicating in our in vitro differentiations, uh, making blastoids or what have you. Um, and I think it's something to consider if we really wanna recapitulate biology, we have to consider uh, the space in which uh, we, we attempt to recapitulate it. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's another element of making our differentiations and our early developmental models a, a little bit better. I agree with you. I think the, the beauty of this paper is in part the, the true basic science of so the, you know, basic science findings that they're having here. And also just the imaging is absolutely just astounding. One obvious question I have here though, is given the interspecies differences in early development, why not use a very early stage human embryo or embryo model, right? I mean, eight cell stage, that should still be feasible, don't you think? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a good point. I, I'm, I'm sure the authors are kind of, you know, shaking their heads saying, Arun, give us a break. Human embryos are very scarce. Um, and, and a lot of the assay that they did here, we talk about it's kind of non-intrusive or, or staining, but they also did like live imaging. They were injecting these uh, RNAs in order to, to track um, with fusion proteins in order to, to see these things in real time. So yeah, I think that using the mouse system just gave them a lot more uh, capability, but uh, for sure, I think that uh, it's, it's something that we should consider uh, looking at in primate or human early embryos just to show that the same things are at play because a lot of things are different, right? Maternal zygotic transition, very different timing between the mouse and primates and uh, presumably other things. What I wonder also uh, along the same lines is maybe can we try to be making like not an eye blastoid, but an eye morula, you know? Can we get to, to, the, to the right to the cusp of that first lineage segregation with human pluripotent stem cells? And I mean, if we can't, why not? You know, it would be a real feat for me to see if we could, instead of re reproducing this from a human embryo, zygote, to see what is, can we recapitulate just the cellular biology? You know, the, the blastoids, they seem to kind of self-assemble. Um, I wonder if they're following this same pathway. Uh, it'd be interesting to test. Questions for Nicola Bervone for a future episode, or maybe June Wu, you know, stay tuned. Maybe we'll be able to have them back on for our ICR episodes coming out in a few months. So uh, maybe we'll be able to, to follow up with that. You know, sticking with the basic science of pure developmental biology, um, we're going to talk about another kind of hardcore differentiation, early differentiation story. This is coming from 
another friend of the show. This is Benoit Bruneau. And actually, I believe he talked a little bit about this particular project when he, we were chatting with him uh, on a previous episode a few months ago. This is, uh, yeah, from Benoit Bruneau's lab over at the Gladstone Institute in San Francisco. And first author is Futansu Hota. It's a nature paper titled Brahma Safeguards Canalization of Cardiac Mesoderm Differentiation. Now, it's a relatively straightforward study. I think, you know, this is talking about the, the flexibility of that Waddington diagram that we've all seen as stem cell biologists, you know, that ski slope approach where you have different canals where a marble can roll down either the ectoderm, endoderm, or mesoderm, and ultimately sulfate is decided. And, and certainly the iPSCs induce pluripotent stem cells through a huge wrench in the Waddington diagram because you can take a ski lift back to the top of the slope, right? And roll the marble back up the hill. There's a million different analogies that you can use for it. And this is another way to kind of throw a wrench in the Waddington diagram because what they're showing here is that um, once mesoderm is initiated, you can actually jump from one canal to another by modulating uh, certain genes, and in this case, Brahma. So this canalization, as they call it, is pretty essential for stabilizing cell fate. Once you initiate mesodermal or whatever differentiation, it's tough to go from mesoderm directly to ectoderm, for example, right? But that's sort of what they did here. They actually showed that a particular BAF chromatin remodeling complex factor, um, Brahma, ATPase gene BRM, Brahma, it actually safeguards cell identity during cardiogenesis in mouse embryonic stem cells. So again, you know, a mouse story and the assumption that it's translatable to humans as well and during uh, human pluripotent stem cell differentiation too. But um, the cool thing, again, they... Uh, push these these mouse embryonic stem cells down the mesodermal and cardiac lineage, but then with a, a Brahma negative cell line, the cells were actually able to jump over and completely become neural pre precursors. So go from mesoderm completely into ectoderm. Pretty incredible, pretty, uh, a pretty strong violation, right? A violation of the germ layer assignment is what they call it. And they found that uh, through a bunch of different analyses, they confirmed the non-mesodermal identity in these Brahma-negative cells. And mechanistically, they show that the loss of Brahma actually prevented the accessibility of prime cardiac enhancers. So this is a, a really strong chromatin story here, right? It increased the expression of different neurogenic factors, prevented the binding of different neural suppressors and all sorts of things. So this is an identity switch caused by this Brahma mutation. And it's actually, uh, the other neat part of the story is they're able to rescue it by actually introducing BMP4, a pretty strong early initiator of the cardiogenic process um, by, yeah, so they're able to restore that mesoderm induction by just introducing BMP4. They did some mathematical modeling on the side to show how Brahma is able to actually modulate differentiation. And ultimately, it's, it's a neat finding showing that these uh, canals in differentiation, the, the endoderm canal, the mesoderm canal, the ectoderm canal are perhaps linked. And perhaps there's ways you can jump from one canal to another, even after your different differentiation is initiated. Uh, trans differentiation or direct reprogramming in a sense, but we're not talking about terminally differentiated cell types. We're talking about cells that are undergoing differentiation that can jump from one canal to another. So honestly, I think that Waddington diagram while it's an amazing uh, thing to show in a textbook for stem cell biologists and everybody entering the field, it's pretty outdated at this point. Don't you think, Dale? 
I would say so. Uh, and you know, this is, I guess, the next chapter. There was this enforced expression: you could violate and flatten Waddington, and here there's like a broken system, I guess you would call it, where you can uh, swap canals or whatever you want to call it. But I wonder: is this? Uh, is there a? This seems to me like a non-physiological mechanism um, here or event. Is there a, a instance, and I remember we had a guest on a while back that I can't conjure now the details, but is there a precedent for like a physiological fate switch or not transdifferentiation, as you said, of terminal cell fate, but like de-differentiation, you know, backing up, up, up the Waddington uh, diagram a little bit and then hopping over and going down a different path? Because it seems like in biology, there would be some utility to that. You know, you have uh, uh, any kind of uh, insult or injury in a tissue, you can imagine there may be a way or a constructive path to uh, this violating this canalization um, toward a constructive use, I guess I would call it. What do you think, Arun? Is, is, it, is it feasible or are the, are the germ layers inviolate? Well, I mean, I will say they did an in vivo model here as well. So they were able to show that actually that loss of Brahma, you can compensate for it both in vitro and in vivo. So that canalization event that they're describing here and the ability to jump from one to the other, uh, you can do that in vivo presumably as well. So perhaps these self-aids and these differentiation approaches are a little bit more flexible than we have traditionally assumed, right? Yes, Mother Nature has a lot more tools in her kit than we are aware of, although we never cease our search. We'll talk about some of that with Alejo, but before we get to that, I have a quick message from Stem Cell Technologies. Gene editing stem cells works best when you're confident in the cells you're editing. Make sure your cells are still hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells by using StemSpan SFEM2 medium from Stem Cell Technologies in your research. Find out more by visiting stemspan.com. All right, everybody. Today we have on the show Dr. Alejo Rodriguez Fraticelli, who is group leader in the lab of quantitative stem cell dynamics at IRB Barcelona. Dr. Rodriguez Fraticelli's group studies stem cell memory and epigenetics in hematopoiesis, immunity, and leukemia with the goal of finding therapies to ultimately have an impact on global public health. Alejo, thank you so much for joining us on the show and welcome. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's a true pleasure to share this space with you and, and to be part of this list of well-known speakers around the world in the stem cell field. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for being here, Alejo. It's always a pleasure to have a bunch of new PIs and fresh faces here on the show. It's a, it's a big part of what we do is to help promote new faces on the show, right? And so you are indeed a new PI at RB, IRB Barcelona. After doing some of your training in Madrid and also in Boston, um, you're pitching your lab as, quote unquote, a playground for scientists from different backgrounds bound together by the common interest of understanding regeneration and its evil twin cancer. I, I love that. Uh, so give us like a, a big picture overview of what you're hoping to focus on in your lab and specifically why you're interested in looking at the two sides of kind of the same coin in regeneration versus cancer. Yeah, sure. Um, so I think the big inspiration here, uh, you know, for my own lab really comes from sort of series of observations that uh, many researchers, including us, have made in the last 
perhaps 15 years uh, looking at stem cells uh, you know, through a different lens, right? Which is this lens of, of single cell analysis. And, and, you know, some groups of researchers have, have used single cell transcriptomics or genomics technologies and uncovered quite an unexpected sort of uh, heterogeneity and, and variation. Uh, you know, people found somatic mutations, uh, also epigenetic heterogeneity. But then a series of other groups, including us, we were using single cell functional assays, uh, transplantation assays for stem cells and, and culture assays, functional assays of, of diverse kinds, and came with this realization uh, that stem cells were also very functionally heterogeneous. And so I think perhaps, you know, among all of these uh, studies, this emerging picture in my mind uh, when, when deciding what to start my lab on um, was, uh, it was very clear for me that I wanted to use the potential of these single cell approaches to tackle uh, these two angles and really understand if the functional heterogeneity that we observe in normal regenerating tissues has some sort of parallelism uh, in disease, in particular in cancer, and perhaps can help us understand why this disease is so heterogeneous, is so plastic, it's so hard to, 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 to treat, and uh, perhaps it's also so uh, you know, display such a crazy variation among individuals. So this was the inspiration, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, the hematopoietic system itself is an inspiration. I'm sure you would agree. I love it because, you know, you talk, you're saying single cell, single cell over there, and it's only in recent years that we've started to leverage these single cell genomic technologies. But forever, the hematopoietic system for me has kind of been defined by that idea of a single cell, single cell that can reconstitute, reconstitute the entire hematopoietic tree. And that's what makes it such an amazing system for a developmental biologist. And in your case, um, you've used uh, that facet of hematopoietic biology to your advantage. Um, and a hu huge component of your research up to now, a major pillar of your technological approach in your new lab, I'm assuming, is lineage tracing, right? Which is uniquely powerful in, in the hematological system. Your papers over the last few years have used the most advanced methods for tracking developmental hierarchy and cellular ancestry in the hematopoietic system and are representative of a whole wave of advanced lineage tracing tech that has come online in the last decade. What are some of the exciting ways you're applying lineage tracing in your ongoing work? Are we ever gonna be able to extend these studies? I know we are on some level, but how far can we go in extending these studies to human hematopoiesis? And specifically for me, because I've got this longstanding interest in identifying and purifying a true uh, kind of hemangioblast uh, in development. Are we able to get some insight into human developmental hematopoiesis with these uh, emerging lineage tracing technologies that you've played a large part in developing? Yeah, well, thank you so much for <laughs> the, the awards that you, you've given us. I, I think that, um, I, absolutely. Uh, I think in the next five years, I would say, we're going to see a barrage of different papers trying to implement lineage tracing methodologies to answer these critical uh, bottlenecks in development that have uh, puzzled us for, for so long, including these uh, early decisions on, on the cells that make uh, the blood stem cells, for instance. And I think that one of the major goals that I set for my lab uh, is to always try to be technology first. This is something that I learned uh, you know, during my uh, PhD and during my postdoc as well, 
And I think that we have to keep innovating and, and creating new technologies to answer questions uh, that we just don't have the tools uh, to answer yet. And so this is you know, one of the major focuses that we have in my lab, and part of it is improving lineage tracing technologies. Uh, I think that we still have some way to go in regards to uh, detection methods and the combination of these methodologies with other emerging platforms, such as, for instance, spatial genomics and spatial transcriptomics, which is, you know, is coming up pretty strong in, in the next, uh, you know, in the past year or two, and probably in the next couple of years as well. And uh, certainly, I, I, you know, think that there's a very, you know, simple way to to study human hematopoiesis, uh, like you suggest, particularly. Uh, ex vivo, as uh, so you can culture these cells now, and and you know we have better ways to to culture them and expand them uh, long term. And now using combining these lineage tracing methodologies, we can try to uh, connect uh, what we call the cellular state, so the 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 um, the constituency of uh, the constitution of the cells at any particular time point with their uh, function in transplantation and in differentiation assays that you typically use to describe stem cell. A function, and so that you know you can do right right away. Uh, another very exciting methodology has been coming up in the last couple of years, and this is largely the work of uh, Leif Ludwig and, and Vijay Sankaran. Um, and Leif actually just established his own uh, junior lab uh, uh, in the Max Delbruck Center uh, in Berlin, and he's used this very cool methodology for lineage tracing using mitochondrial mutations. So somatic mutations that appear in cells in the level of mitochondria, and these are largely a random uh, process, but eventually some of these mutations stabilize and allow you to trace cells without the need of any kind of genome engineering, which is the, the way that we normally um, uh, employ these lineage tracing methodologies. So those are very exciting methods. I, I think I, I've seen a few labs already starting to pick them up, and I'm very excited. We're actually working on, on some innovations in that regards as well. I think that this uh, presents a very, very interesting opportunity for human hematopoietic researchers as well. So then let's take a deeper dive into actually some of your own work that you've utilized and used some of these lineage tracing approaches to uh, look at lineage fate in native hematopoiesis, right? You actually conducted a large portion of this when you were a postdoc in the lab of Fernando Camargo over in Boston, collaborating with Alon Klein, and you actually used transposon tagging to clonally trace the fates of progenitors and stem cells in native hematopoiesis, kind of like what we're talking about. Um, I actually thought one of the coolest findings in the paper was how you showed this like distinct clonal roadmap where kind of the megakaryocyte lineages arise independently of the other blood cell fates, which is a pretty cool finding. So take us a little bit deeper through this work and in particular, how you're able to leverage some of these cool technologies like we're talking about and approaches in lineage tracing to actually get a better understanding of cell fate and hematopoiesis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. I think the, the biggest power uh, of those methods that we published in 2018 and are largely the fact that the barcoding, so the identification, the labeling of each cell in the, in the mouse happens in situ and in a completely random fashion. And so in this type of assays, one doesn't have some sort of a priori information or bias uh, in your methodology. So you're not trying to, let's say, in a traditional lineage tracing approach, you would use a recombinase or some sort of molecule uh, that will allow you to label your cells and you will put a promoter and an enhancer or you will knock it into a gene uh, because you have some a priori information of 
you know, the activity of that gene in a particular progenitor, precursor, or stem cell. But in these type of methods, the ones that we employ, each cell is acquired in a random label, completely without any kind of a priori information. And then later on, after a certain period of time passes, we can isolate the cells and just compare these randomly generated tags and see if now they match with each other. So they have the same barcode or tag or, or label. And if they do, the only possible explanation for that is that those two cells shared some ancestor some time ago, okay? And this is a very powerful type of information, especially the fact that it's completely unbiased because you can test this hypothesis of whether two cells have a common ancestor for pretty much any two cells that you can, you can find and, and purify in uh, uh, an animal, in this case, the mouse. And so these are extremely powerful methods. In our case, without any kind of a priori or biased information about which, which two cells were related, we found this very powerful connection between uh, the hematopoietic stem cells, especially the long-term hematopoietic stem cells, the ones that are mostly quiescent and they have the highest regenerative potential, and megakaryocytes. And this was done without the use of any kind of specific Cree drivers and any kind of, of biased or a priori methods. Then later on, we, we, we found that various other researchers using models that we didn't have available at the time because they were not even there to begin with, they found this same type of association. And so we were like very, very surprised that these methods could be this powerful. And, and of course, in my lab, we're uh, trying to use the same type of methods to, to find associations between stem cells and, and differentiated cells, uh, the, specifically with this question of finding biased stem cells. So those that have perhaps um, are more prone to differentiate into, into one particular kind of, of mature progeny uh, in various tissues. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's what you said right there, I just want to touch on quickly. It's, it must be so gratifying to just come at something, just let the biology speak to you and then have someone come in and, and uh, reproduce it and, and affirm it. So congrats on that result. Of course, I follow this paper closely um, because, you know, I, I've, been in the game i kind of washed out of the game as a hematologist i'm going to be honest um because it's you know it was tough i was going after a cell that, that literally thousands of scientists before me have gone after and i couldn't get it uh, i couldn't find it because it's hard to find it seems like a never-ending pursuit um and not just in developmental hematopoiesis right but also just trying to understand our, our search for the the secret to controlling the growth of a hematopoietic stem cell in the adult or, you know, uh, in pathological contexts like cancer, just understanding what controls self-renewal of these cancer or hematopoietic stem cells is so key to health and disease. And here in this paper, I want to touch on the, the latest entry in the, the whole breadth of transcription factors that seem to play a role. You identify TCF15 here seem to have major potential. Um, and there's a lot to follow up on there, right? Is what does TCF15 do in cancer? What does it do in the adult and steady state and stress, et cetera? I mean, you could build a whole lab out of it. So, I mean, is that the path you're on? Do you feel like we're, we're on the cusp of uh, really mastering the, the, the hematopoietic stem cell by understanding these transcription factors like TCF15? Um, and if not, if this isn't the silver bullet or, or the, the factors that we are aware of or know of uh, to date, if that's not the silver bullet, what's, what's the, the greatest obstacle um, or, or to, to getting there, do you think? Why, why is it so tough to, to crack the code, so to speak? 
Yeah, I, I think that is probably one of the most fascinating questions in this field right now. And probably one of the few questions that really has me completely anchored still <laughs> on this hematopoietic field for sure. Because it's just very, very hard to make a hematopoietic stem cell, like an adult hematopoietic stem cell. And then, of course, there's been you know, decades of, of work regarding this and many researchers trying to find out the perfect you know, formula concoction for, for making an adult-like uh, stem cell. And, and it requires a lot of things. And, and very intriguingly, none of those things is a quick recipe like what we have for induced pluripotent stem cells, for instance, with the Yamanaka factors or something like this. Like it doesn't seem to be something as, as simple. And, uh, you know, there's very interesting uh, results coming up from, from multiple angles suggesting that inflammation might, might play a big role in this process of maturation already for probably uh, close to a decade of, of research uh, reflecting that. And I think that, you know, extrinsic signals that may play this type of very major role in, in maturation, the maturation process of these cells that are very hard to recapitulate, to recapitulate with transcription factor manipulations might be the key. And, uh, and I have to say that I, you know, obviously believe that DCF15 plays uh, some uh, big role on this. We are trying to understand exactly how it's regulated upstream, which is, uh, I think, one of the most interesting aspects for me. Certainly, we don't find it expressed during early development, which kind of makes sense with the fact that it's a factor that mature quiescent cells use. So it's very specifically turned on uh, later in, in the, let's say, the life of a hematopoietic stem cell. And, and to us, this is very fascinating. So why, why is it like this? And what signal is actually triggering its, uh, its activation? And once it's active, we know that it acts like a switch. So then we think, it, you know, of course, it might be a very interesting factor to manipulate to improve therapies or, or even understand its role in, in cancer mm. as well. Yeah, I, I really like the analogy that you made there, you know, comparing hematopoietic stem cells or their der derivation to iPSCs, you know, iPSCs, we've been able to reprogram these somatic tissues into a pluripotent stem cell, something that's kind of artificial, right? Is an artificial cell type. And yet here we are still in 2022 and we can't make a bona fide hematopoietic stem cell. Uh, you know, it's, it's something to strive for. And I'm sure you're going to be very busy trying to hunt that down for, for the, the rest, hopefully not the rest of your career. Maybe, you know, at some point this is going to be unlocked, but it is still definitely a, a holy grail that is out there. And, you know, let's shift a little bit away from the science and more about where you're doing the science, which is, of course, IRB Barcelona. You're a, a new PI there, or Barcelona, depending on your pronunciation. Uh, it's become really an international powerhouse in stem cell and biomedical research. And we've actually covered quite a few studies coming from IRB Barcelona on the show. You're, of course, no stranger to working in Spain. You actually did your PhD training in Madrid, but the decision about where a new PI should start up their new lab, it's, it's not an easy one. I mean, it's something that I've had to go through myself and it's, especially during the times of the current pandemic, it's, it's tough. It's a tough choice to make. So tell us why you actually ultimately decided to start things fresh at IRB Barcelona and what do you love about the place? Yeah. So, uh, you know, it was a tough year to go out and find a job. Uh, you know, this was 2020 and things, you know, were, were really, really difficult, I have to say. Um, but, you know, I interviewed, like, I guess most people in, in a few places, you know, try to try to feel, get a feel for, for understanding a little bit of what I wanted to build and, and what was the most important thing for me from every, every place. And I realized 
probably after the second interview that I valued really highly the the PIs that got her, like around me uh, during the times of the interview that talked to me that interacted with me and and that played a major role in in selecting let's say uh, the last few two three uh, potential places and then finally making the decision to come to IRB Barcelona and like you said I think it's the the fact that it's a center that doesn't have actually a ton of labs, uh, but it's very selective. And so they're very, all very good labs. There's a very large group of stem cell focused researchers here, both in the genomics field, which is very, very strong, uh, as well as on the, let's say, uh, developmental biology, stem cell biology aspect. And so, um, and I guess when I was interviewing, there was also no one working on hematopoietic stem cell biology. Now that for some people, might uh, be a little bit scary because you think that a lot of the technologies maybe are not implemented. Uh, you know, maybe you lack some of the of the tools that you need to carry out the job. Maybe you know, just don't have too many hematopoietic researchers around you, close by to 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 kind of guide you and so on. Uh, and so, it, from that side, it was a little bit scary. But on the other hand, you know, it also makes you makes it more interesting for you. You're kind of surrounded by people that are not as I guess as biased by these ideas that have been in the field for so long and come up with all these other fresh angles from stem cell biology, but from all these different organs. And also all the tools and, and uh, that I've been building for so many years, I can now apply them through collaborations with, with you know, across all these different tissues. So that for me was very exciting as an, as an opportunity. And then finally, I also realized that Barcelona has a, an amazing like community for hematopoietic research. And so there's a lot of other hematopoietic stem cell researchers, people like Ana Vigas, Pablo Menendez, I don't know, really across the, the entire, I mean, I could come up with a big list of names. And, and, you know, I realized that I was obviously not going to be alone and by myself. I'm part of a city of, of research institutes uh, that are all very close to each other because it's a relatively small city too, and that interact and collaborate a lot. So uh, in that regards, I, you know, it was check, 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 let's come here. Yeah, cir circling back to uh, Arun's first question, I mean, you described your lab uh, as a playground and you're creating this, this atmosphere for your trainees where they can really, they can play. Um, and I, I love that idea, but you know, you got to find yeah, every playground, playground exists in a park, right? And you got, you got to find your park where you can build your playground. It seems like Barcelona was, was the right spot. Um, and, you know, I, I've been to Barcelona. Who hasn't? Having spent only a few weeks of my life in Barcelona, I, I can, it's not hard for me to see why, why you've uh, made the move. But you alluded to it, and so did Arun. Starting anything new in, in this uncertain time has got to be a bit weird. That's an understatement. Very weird. Um, of course, you don't really have a frame of reference, right? This is, this is your experience. You started your new lab only once, right? Um, but there, there's got to be some ways, some tangible ways uh, that that it may have affected the process. Can you identify any of those? I mean, do you think it's it's influenced at all? Maybe what, what research projects you and or your trainees are drawn to? You know, you have a lot of people coming to you saying, "I want to work on long COVID," for example. But what do you think it's been like in a nutshell to start a new lab in times of COVID? Yeah, I, I think there's. A few challenges that were related with just moving from the U.S. to Europe. Uh, that, that for sure, I have to say, it's almost as as challenging as COVID uh, because you know you're switching a system. I worked uh, in the U.S. for six years. I had written all my grants, you know, in the U.S. and I was very excited about the possibilities of, of 
becoming a PI in the US as well. So I had that in my, uh, perhaps time-wise, I wasn't as rushing with uh, the application process as in Europe. In Europe, we have this big deadline, which is the ERC starting grant program, which is this, you know, some of the most prestigious and, and biggest grants, which luckily we, we finally managed to, to obtain. Uh, but, but this deadline kind of pushes you to, to apply to institutions a little bit earlier. So that's why I started, you know, just starting, you know, with, with, uh, sending out some applications in Europe that particular year, a little bit ahead of time. And yeah, thank God I did because also, you know, after the pandemic, a ton of these other um, job, you know, uh, opportunities were kind of hanging in there and not, not very clear. So uh, in that regards, I was I was kind of lucky in that way. But once I knew I was coming here and uh, I was dead set on it, then the hardest thing has been definitely recruiting people. Uh, it's very very difficult to bring and attract talent internationally when you have a big pandemic, and this you can see reflected in the number of postdoc applications that you receive, and I talk to other researchers and we all talk about this all the time around here. And it's just perhaps 50% of what it used to be, and largely because of this. Now, the, the other, on the other hand, there's a lot of local, very talented students that, whereas previously they might've gone away and searched uh, you know, for positions elsewhere because of COVID restrictions or you know, family situations linked to COVID, they have decided to stay. And so the pool of local students, uh, you know, quality students have actually, have actually increased a little bit. So you can, you can see that in the, in the type of, and, and the quality of the applications that we've been receiving as well. So in that regards, it balanced it out and it's kind of okay. But that's, that has been for sure the most challenging thing. And then the second one, I would say, getting supplies in. And this has been echoed in you know, the Twitter sphere and many other places, by many other you know, junior PI Slack or you know, many other channels. Uh, we're all struggling with getting essential things that because of supply chain management issues and so on have been delayed massively. And from computers to centrifuges to you name it, plastic tubes. I mean, it's been a total crisis. And we've learned we've, you know, our way through the system now. And we know when to order certain things that might take two, three months to come. But, uh, you know, you have to be speedy on your feet. And, and it's, it's a little bit tricky to be flexible and adapt quickly, uh, especially in, you know, in science, we need to sometimes you know, make quick decisions and, and get orders in fast if you really want to, to take a advantage of an opportunity and that has become nearly impossible. So you have to plan your science ahead very well. Absolutely, and uh, I echo your sentiments completely. Here I am trying to order a bottle of RPMI or like a couple of bottles of RPMI and it's taking, oh my gosh, still backordered, right? It's just a supply chain nightmare out there. And hopefully things are starting to look better. And hopefully the lessons that we learn from this crazy time are going to serve us well going into the future, persistence, perseverance, all that good stuff, right? But, you know, part of starting a new lab and especially part of starting a new lab now is thinking really carefully about your lab philosophy and sort of the type of people that you want to join your lab and, you know, what qualities those people should have, right? It's uh, something that actually found on your lab website, which has a bunch of great quotes, by the way, you should, all of our listeners should definitely take a look at Alejo's lab website, bunch of great quotes on there. And so one of the quotes was, if you're weird here, you'll find a home. If you're unique here, you'll find a group of peers. And if you're a bit crazy here, you'll find the opportunities that you need to break out. 
I think that's phenomenal. And I think that summarizes your, your lab philosophy really nicely. So talk to us a little bit more about your lab's emphasis on diversity. And if a student was deciding on whether to ultimately join your lab, whether it's some of those local students or perhaps some of the other international folks out there, give them a summary as to why they should join your lab. Yeah, I, I think that that phrase that you you quoted there is is pretty much the heart of how we feel. I, I guess it comes from me being like an underdog or a weirdo. I felt like that my whole life, you know, from when I was in high school, uh, I was into things that no one liked. And and even throughout my, my whole career, I've always been, you know, uh, a little bit different. And I felt like, you know, all those people in the end end up kind of getting together and, and build really cool things in science. Now, this has happened over and over uh, throughout time. And you can look at, you know, some of the most legendary scientists and, and talk to them, you know, look at their interviews and you can see that. Um, and, and so I, I knew I wanted to create that type of safe place for, for these people to interact and not feel like excluded like this. Uh, and I also think that the best ideas really come when you have people from different backgrounds, uh, different sort of philosophies, sometimes religions, I mean, really a you know, broad spectrum of experiences in life that bring up out new ideas, new ways to interact with science, scientific questions. Like science in the end is just a method. We can all do it no matter where we come from or what are where our life's experiences. And so, but everything that we've experienced plays a big role in how we see certain question, how we, you know, um, tackle a particular challenge. And, and science is largely about solving challenges, right? I mean, this is something that you don't see in papers because the struggles are not there. There's only the successes. There's only the, the you know, the, the, the significant p-values and these type of things. And we, we don't have that other part, how we solve those challenges. And, and this is something that I, you know, you know, it is the, the, the bread and butter of, of science for me. And how you actually manage to solve those challenges is on one hand with good mentoring and good support from the people that are, uh, you know, around you and above you. Uh, or, uh, and, and on the other side, it has to come from, you know, creating a fun, engaging experience for people. So what people will find students or, or postdocs are going to find in my lab in, instantly when, you know, when they do interviews with us, if I instantly that we're a very fun, cheerful group of people, we all kind of lift each other and we all have different views, you know, different life experiences. We come from different places uh, and we are, you know, all about trying to bring out the best in each of us. In other words, a bunch of weirdos. But I mean, I love what you're saying there because the the it's such a great contrast, right? You talk about science, it's all about precision and the p-values and the truth. And it's so regimented, right? But then at the end of the day, it's a bunch of weirdos doing it. You know, it's such a nice, I think, uh, parallel that these people are thinking so far out the box, but they're trying to fit those thoughts into a precise instrument to, to seek the truth. So, hey, I would love to join your lab. I'm, I'm pretty weird. Will you have me? Uh, you certainly got the money. I mean, you, you said it before you were uh, successful in getting this starting grant from the ERC. I should mention you also got this Chris Award, which is a, a really healthy uh, sum there. So you've been awarded some of these prestigious uh, funding mechanisms. And that's just what I'm aware of from the quick search. I'm sure you got a lot of support. So I can imagine 
that this scientific playground you're building is one that any trainee could get lost in, particularly the weirdos. So uh, I just can't wait to see what comes out of it. Before we let you go, though, Alejo, I have a couple of uh, peripheral science-related questions to ask you first, and I can't wait to hear the answer to this because you're all over the place. What is one hobby that you always wanted to pursue but were never able to? Mm, so, yeah, I actually had a few. <laughs> it's not a... <laughs> Definitely not a joke. I had a few hobbies that were kind of uh, interesting. Uh, I think like a lot of people I've been finding out uh, across the interwebs, I was super into role-playing games. Uh, I don't know why, but they brought this deep creativity about uh, you know, telling stories. And this is something that I've always enjoyed doing. And I think that largely my interest in, in science, uh, in academia in particular, is that it's mostly about telling stories and finding a way to tell a story that is compelling, that can transmit your science in a compelling fashion, and, and that carries that you know, truth and opens it up to the, to, the, to the public, to the scientific public. or to... And so, yeah, I was super into that. And I missed uh, you know, my friends and playing with my friends or sometimes with just you know, random people. I in Boston, I actually... Uh, managed to to get a play group and we got together a few times but you know responsibilities start piling up family responsibilities start piling up and then you have to quit some of these hobbies and i, I kind of miss it uh, quite a bit well you can always get back to it i mean it's there's got to be some time to blow off some steam in between your papers my friend uh finally what is the best piece of advice you've ever been given either professional or not Um, I think the best piece of advice, and I think this is a quote from someone or something like this, but it's it's the piece of advice I, I, I was given very early on in my career, and it's always to try to be the most stupid person in a room. <laughs> um, just surround yourself with people that are smarter than you all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, whenever you think you're the smartest one in, in, a, in a place, you're, you're probably in the wrong place. So, which is, you know, it's interesting because in science, we're it's a career that is so driven by egos and by our feelings of, you know, um, just success or, or and, 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 and in reality, it's, it's not really like that. What we really love is being taught. If you're a true scientist, what you love is learning new things. This mm -hmm. is actually what, uh, you know, drove me and attracted me to this, to this career in particular uh, in the beginning. And uh, I would say that, you have to keep being that kid, you know, learning science, you know, when, when you were in, you know, primary school or secondary school and maintain that spirit. And you can only do that if you surround yourself with people that are from other fields and smarter than you, at least as smart as you, uh, that will just keep you, you know, on your feet all the time. And so, yeah, that's the best advice I've been given and I've been trying to follow it up my whole life. Yeah, that is it, right? To be a great scientist, it's a lifetime of learning. Um, and I mean, I think you're, you're well on the path and uh, bringing in your trainees with you. Thank you so much for sharing and uh, sharing what you've learned with us and our listeners. And uh, we can't wait to hear and see what comes next from you, Alejo. Thanks again, man. Thank you. Thank you so much for your questions and uh, really for inviting me to this program and for giving us young PIs a voice in all of this. So thank you so much again. 
All right, guys, that brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. Arun, I'm getting excited for the ISSCR meeting. You know, it's months away, but you never can get into it too early. I got my abstracts going. I hope you do too. And all you listeners, stay tuned. We're going to have messages about that and some other exciting episodes coming up. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.